Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Free Trail Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Dylan Bowman, here with another really fun bonus episode, a departure from our standard trail and ultra running conversation. Today, I am joined again by my old friend, Mr. Mike Alfred, for his second appearance on the show. I joke that Mike has become the chief financial correspondent of the Free Trail Podcast. He is a very successful entrepreneur and investor himself. Mike is also an ultra runner, which is obviously how he and I were originally connected. And we have since become friends. I've been lucky to learn a lot from Mike about business, entrepreneurship, investing, and especially the Bitcoin slash cryptocurrency space, which is where we spend the bulk of our time in this conversation. So obviously, this is different from our typical show, but it is stuff that I am genuinely very interested in, and hopefully content that will be helpful, informative, or at least entertaining for all of you. In this conversation, we talk all about things like inflation, the current state of the Bitcoin and traditional financial markets, how it's changed from the last time Mike was on the show about a year ago. We talk about institutional adoption of Bitcoin, our personal allocation and investment strategies, his thoughts on Ethereum and other digital assets, and much, much more. And for context, for those who follow these markets closely, we recorded this podcast on November 23rd. So it's been a couple weeks ago now. At the time of our recording, the Bitcoin price was around 57,000. And then in true Bitcoin fashion, it dropped about 20% before recovering a little bit. And right now it's hovering around $50,000 a coin. So just wanted to add that here on the front end for context about when this conversation was recorded and where we are now. And also, I just want to add that as a listener of a lot of podcasts that provide analysis about this stuff and financial markets in general, I feel compelled to emphasize that this is not financial advice. Mike and I both talk about our personal investments, uh, but especially with these very volatile assets, it is important to do your own research and be reasonable with your own investment strategy. This episode is super dense with awesome info. I hope you learned something from this conversation. Without further delay, please welcome the great Mike Alfred. Mike Alfred, welcome back to the show. The chief financial correspondent of the podcast, Mr. Mike Alfred. Welcome back. How are you, buddy? Good, good debuts. It's always good to see you, man. And what a year it's been. <laughs> what a year it's been. And I have so much I want to talk to you about. Like, just uh, I feel like I can learn so much from you and I want to take advantage of every second that we have. But sort of before we get to the more general stuff about the markets and Bitcoin and your subject matter expertise, I want to do some personal talk about you because last time we talked, you were sort of at a a turning point in your life, selling your business. And uh, it seems like now you're proudly unemployed just as a avid follower of yours and a consumer of the content that you put <laughs> up on the, uh, on the internet. So catch us up on what's happened over the last 12 months with the transaction and what you're up to now. Yeah. So uh, sold digital assets data to Nidig. Uh, the transaction closed the day before Thanksgiving last year. I think it was November 25th. So, you know, Thanksgiving was a good day because if you've ever been through a transaction process, it is like a nail biter, right? You're just white knuckling it all the way. 
to the finish line, you keep thinking it's not going to close and like any sign that's not going to close and you kind of get even more stressed out. Right. And so your nervous system is just running in overdrive. Uh, but got it done the, the night before Thanksgiving, I hopped in the hot tub, uh, grabbed a cocktail. Uh, my dad was coming into town, uh, you know, for Thanksgiving. So he showed up and I'm in the hot tub, like literally decompressing from the transaction process. Uh, but it was basically a save. And I mentioned that in our last uh, conversation. I mean, this was not the most successful company that I've ever uh, built, but I was proud to stick with it. I was a true ultra runner in this <laughs> transaction process because I, I assure you, and my wife likes to remind me too, uh, that like 99% of people would have given up uh, before it got to the finish line on this one because uh. it was pretty brutal, but uh, got the transaction done. Uh, got about half of our team members over to NIDIG. NIDIG's one of the top institutional custodians uh, in the crypto space. They compete with Gemini and Coinbase and Anchorage and a bunch of these other uh, big firms. And so I worked I worked with them for about eight months, uh, running strategy at M&A, uh, made a lot of large investments in the Bitcoin mining space, became a Bitcoin mining expert, uh, bought a company, made a bunch of investments. Uh, enjoyed the experience, but Dylan, I think you know this about me. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Yeah. Uh, I'm not very good at working for anyone. Uh, you could actually be a pretty decent employer and you could pay really well and you could have great health insurance, but like, it's not going to matter to somebody like me. Eventually I'm going to chafe. And I thought I might last a year. I, I lasted eight months, which is pretty good uh, <laughs> for me. But, you know, in, in around June, um, you know, I, I, uh, left. And since then I've just been tweeting a lot. As you've seen, I had 5,000 Twitter followers, uh, on whatever it was like Jan <laughs> June 11th. And today I have like 56,000. Yep. Uh, so I've 10 X my, my Twitter following in like four or five months. Um, and a lot of that is just like, one of the things you recognize when you work in corporate America for a while is that a lot of the people who know stuff about the way the world works, they're not allowed to tweet. Right? They're not allowed to say what they really think. They're not allowed to talk about transactions or deals or billionaires or money, right? Uh, because there's all these rules. Even as a CEO, you're oftentimes sort of hamstrung by your own board and your shareholders and the, and the SEC and the process of earnings and quiet periods and pre-earnings and post-earnings and pre-transaction and post-transaction. And so for the first time in my adult life, you know, here I am 39 years old. Uh, it was about a week or two before my, um, it was like 10 days before my 40th birthday. And I'm a free man for the first time. And since college, you know, like wow. since an 18, 19 year old kid, and I finally don't have a job, don't need a job. And I'm like, let me, let me try this tweeting thing. So I just started <laughs> tweeting about Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin equities and equities in general and mining and it uh, turns out there's a, a quite a big audience for for that type of oh, yeah. uh, information. Um, and so the that's online like, Bitcoin community is a voracious. It's rabid. Yeah, 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 it's so rabid and so energetic and so fun to be a part of on the internet. Yeah, so it's been fun. Um, there's a dark side of that too because there's a whole crew of like really toxic maximalist uh, Bitcoiners that you know, don't really like people who like truly just like think any, independently. Just like, like any if, internet community, there's some yeah, toxic yeah, but people. The, but the Bitcoin community <laughs> is particularly very lit. Like, when money's like, involved, it's for the, the toxic people probably become Bitcoin isn't toxic. just money. It's it's a religion, right? Like, let's That's just true. Call, call it what yeah. it is. And so like, you're, you're like violating their religion when you, when you go vegan and you refuse to eat steak or yeah. right, you, yeah. you invest in, you invest in equities or, uh, you know, you vote for a democratic uh, politician or whatever. There's all these sort of like unspoken, but very clear 
kind of uh, undertones to because yeah. it's a very libertarian movement. So sort of libertarian for me, but not for you type of thing. Yep. Yep. Um, so it's been fun though. And, and I, I carved out a niche in the mining space uh, and uh, I did a podcast with Preston Pish, yes, loved which, it. You, which loved you cited, it. which was one of the best podcasts I've done. It was only like 45 minutes, but it was full of it was information dense. I listened to it afterwards. Yeah, I, I want to well, reference back to in. some of that stuff a little bit later on because I thought it was fascinating, just the whole diversification within the crypto space and like having a 360 degree investment strategy that's not necessarily only in the assets or in tokens, but also within these companies like the Bitcoin miners and stuff. And I so, did a, I did analysis real quick. Let me just share the story on HUD and Marathon and some of the other big Bitcoin miners. And that got passed around, you know, to pretty much every large mining company in the world. So I heard from probably eight of the top 10 miners in the world about that a particular podcast. And directly and indirectly, that led to me joining the board of Iris Energy, uh, which is one of the largest uh, renewable miners in the world, probably one of the largest in the world today by contracted hash rate. So call it top three to five. Uh, in the Western world. And we just went public uh, on NASDAQ last week in a $231 million IPO last Wednesday. So that was a pretty big milestone for me. They added wow. me to the board about a month before the IPO as sort of like the independent uh, Bitcoin uh, and industry expert, uh, because this is really a heavy duty industrial scale energy development company that does Bitcoin mining. But the Bitcoin is sort of an afterthought in a sense to the process of like developing these large scale projects. And so they, the chairman heard this podcast and asked specifically uh, the CEO, Hey, do you know this guy, Mike? And of course he did. Cause I had I talked to them a bunch when I was at Nidig. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it was a couple conversations and I joined the board. So it's always been a dream of mine for, you know, 10, 15 years now to join a public board. And typically you're 50, 55, 60 years old when you first yeah. get asked to do these things. But if you can crack the public board scene, younger, it's like dominoes. You could probably join some other ones. So I'm really enjoying mm -hmm. doing board work, not just with Iris, but with a few other companies, mostly smaller companies. But having that IPO experience last week was really interesting. Awesome, man. Well, congratulations. And I'm wondering as a born winner and somebody who carries this high achieving CEO energy, are you finding a similar satisfaction with board work, you know, the transition from kind of being the player to the coach rather than being in the grind in the startup environment, having a little bit more of a big picture type approach to, to business in general, are you missing the daily grind at all so far? There's a huge spectrum there, Dylan. So like at Eagle Brook advisors, where I basically was the shadow co-founder of the company, right? Like the early ideas for it uh, came partially from the founding CEO, Chris King, but a lot of them came from me because I had wealth management background. He was 24, 25 when he founded the company. So his network was much smaller. There were a lot of strategic decisions that weren't as obvious to him that I had done before. Um, and so even though I wasn't an executive there and I haven't been an executive there, when big stuff happens, I dig in and do the work just like I would be doing if I was the CEO. So when we went out to raise the Series A recently, um, I made one call basically to one VC out of the 30 or 40 we could have talked to. It was a one call close and they led the series A, which has not been announced. Um, he'll announce it whenever he's ready to do that. But it's a pretty big deal because there's some very big investors in there. Wow. Um, so, so I'm still in the game, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not right. official, officially employed. Uh, I don't have an executive role there. I'm not looking for a job. Right. But 
uh, in that situation, I was still able to get in there and, and get dirty. And the same thing, you know, at Iris and other companies, like I'm not on the airplane. I'm not the one that's responsible for the team and the customers anymore. And I don't miss that. Like I, I went on a couple airplanes the you last do, few months. You don't months miss it at all. No, no, uh. no. I got on a couple airplanes for fun, right. To go on a trips. And I hated just being on the airplane. I like, I can't do it anymore. Like, so if I had to get on an airplane and go to conferences and me customers every week, like I was doing for the last 10 years, I, yeah. I wouldn't have been interested anyway. So it's been a perfect, really? perfect transition for me. And I'm still working eight, nine, 10 hours a day Yeah, good. Uh, during the week. So it's not like I'm totally retired. Yeah. And a little bit more ownership of your time probably, and a little bit more control over the activities that you're stuffing into those eight to 10 hours. So that's, that's really cool. And one more thing before we sort of transition into the meat of our conversation is I got to hear the story about Western States. Of course you showed up with a Bitcoin shirt on and I don't think you were properly trained up for it. So, you know, give us the, the story of what happened at Western States and, uh, why, uh, why you didn't make it to the finish line. I got to give you a hard time about that before we yeah, focus sure. on the good stuff. Sure. But I listened to your grand raid <laughs> podcast with your brother, which I really enjoyed. And you were like your advice to people, essentially one piece of advice was if you're not really all the way in, right? Like just don't even, don't even go. But I got to tell you to, I wasn't in this for two years. Right. right. So I signed up to do Western States. Remember it was a pandemic year. Yeah. So I signed up to do this in 2019. I had just come off of Leadville. It wasn't a particularly good race for me, but in 2019 I did Leadville in 24, 50, whatever. Felt like crap the entire time. I was not really in shape. Uh, I had a terrible like congestion in my back of my throat. It's a, it's a chronic problem that I think I might've finally cracked now by cutting gluten over the last four months. It's receded by like 90%. For 10 years, mm -hmm. I've been struggling with this. Every time I go for a hard run or a long run, I get this like post-nasal drip in the back of the throat. I've tried every, I've been to four allergists, right? I've done all the scans and they put the, the tube down your nose to look in the back of your throat and tried all the medications and all the nasal sprays. And Dude, finally, that could be stress related too, probably. Sure. Now that you're finally out of the grind. I think it's a combination of stress, a combination of allergies, um, and a, a combination of, of diet. Uh, there's a bunch of different things in there, but I've been managing all of them now. I do like the daily uh, neti pot, like every morning religiously, right? I take Claritin. Um, I do local honey now, right? To get the, because the oh, yeah. there's a lot of new allergens and we had a really bad allergy year in, in uh, Las Vegas uh, over the last year or so. But the gluten, I really think has made a difference. Like I feel better uh, without gluten in my, in my diet. So, but but the long story short is that I signed up in, in 2019. I was like a different person. By the time I was supposed to start training at the end of 2020, when, when we knew there was going to be a race in 2021, like I wasn't even, my mind wasn't in running at all. Yeah. I could barely run a mile because the stuff at the back of my throat was so thick that I literally would gag. Like, so I didn't try, I didn't try to start training for Western States until about 40 days in advance. I managed to run a couple of like eight, and 10 milers. Right. And it was terrible. <laughs> and I felt like crap, but I'm like, you know what? Like, like I had a 1% odds of getting into Western States. I had one ticket, right. I'll probably never do this again. Like maybe I could just show up and like walk my way to the finish. And it was just freaking brutal. It was hot. It was, it was much harder hard than I thought it could be. Yeah. I, I, I literally hadn't gone past 10 or 12 miles. I was coughing like six miles in eight miles in, like I was basically sick on the course. But I'm a game game time guy. So I, I, you know, worked my way through 31 miles. And then I realized that 31 miles, like if I don't drop here, 
I may not see anybody for like 20 more miles. And there's like (laughs) that huge climb in the middle. It's like the heat of the day. It's much harder to get out once you leave Robinson flat. Yeah. I I laid down at mile 29, like for the first time in my entire life of running. Right. I laid down on the side of the trail and I couldn't get up for five minutes. So like to your point at, at grand rate, like I wish I even thought I had a chance of finishing the race, but I think even at the starting line, I didn't want to do it. Another anecdote yeah. I'd give you turns is that out you have to train for these goddamn races. No matter where, where your <laughs> mind is at, if you're not in shape, you can't do it. I was literally in last place, like no joke, last place of the entire race, a hundred yards in the first class. I walked the first hundred yards. And I was shocked that these people who didn't look like they're in good shape, they were still ahead of me. Um, I thought people would want to start slower for a hundred miler. I mean, the way I ran 16 hours in 2015 was starting in like a really even pace, but people were like, running people who didn't even finish were running up that first climb. I'm like, what are they doing? Yeah. I, w- I, w- I thought I was moving pretty well. And I was in literally last place. My, my wife has a video of it where you can clearly see me like in a clump of like three or four people literally in the caboose, <laughs> the very back person of the race, hundred yards in, because I didn't even want to get out of the car to go to the start because I just wasn't mentally in it. So yeah, for me, well, it was a, it was a 31 mile uh, training run, probably my last 31 mile run, maybe ever. Uh, not the way I would have liked to retire, but you know, again, I have no shame about it. I didn't feel anything afterwards. I just like kind of relieved to be done and off the course and out of the way so that the, you know, the staff there could take care of people who actually had a chance to finish. Yeah. Well, kudos for giving it a shot. Yeah. When you get pulled, you got to at least try and, uh, you made it to Robinson flat and you claim to be retired. We'll see if that actually remains true here in the near future. But, uh, yeah, it's how you and I got connected was through this sport. And I have so much, you know, respect and admiration for you as an athlete, but also for what you do outside of running. And I think we should sort of spend the bulk of our time, the rest of our time sort of talking about that, because last time you were here, you shared so much great information. It was such a dense episode with just helpful advice and experience from your life as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, and now in your new uh, sort of career in the cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin space. And there's obviously a lot that I'm interested in in this space. And uh, because I have a podcast and because we have a friendship, I'm able to persuade you to come on and teach me and also our audience a lot of this stuff. And it's been a really exciting year, man. Since the last time we recorded, it was basically one year ago now. And so much has happened. And I want to sort of start this conversation in the Bitcoin space by sort of bringing up this whole conversation about inflation. And last time you were here, you sort of provided a synopsis about what that actually means. And I was hoping that you could just sort of put that back on the table, package it in a way that normal, you know, sort of athlete oriented audience can understand like why inflation is at 30 year highs right now. And, uh, you know, why specifically it's not smart to keep savings in cash, because this is something that I'm embarrassed to admit took me a long time to figure out. Yeah. Well, um, it's a hot topic. All of a sudden you, you wouldn't think something so esoteric would become part of the national dialogue, uh, but it did it in the seventies as well. Right. And we're seeing some of the similar things, you know, gas prices in California are six bucks right now that, that gets people's attention um, pretty quickly. And, you know, people are seeing it at the grocery store, people are seeing it in asset prices like homes, right? Like no matter where you live, uh, house prices are going up. Um, there's a migration of people 
uh, from around the country. I was just reading an article in the journal yesterday that believe it or not, like the inland empire of California has had a huge net migration in the last year or two. So people are moving from places like LA to like San Bernardino. I'd never would have thought that anybody would want to do that. In my view, if you're going to leave, uh, you know, LA, you should just go all the way to Vegas or go someplace with no state income taxes or go to Texas or whatever. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but people are moving if they want to keep their job, they can just drive, um, you know, an hour from, from uh, the inland empire. But a lot of that is because prices are going up. Um, and prices go up for a lot of different reasons, right? But one of the primary reasons um, that prices have been going up recently is that we've created a lot more money, right? As a, as a society, as a country uh, in the last year than we had in previous periods, right? And, and a lot of that was initially a response to the pandemic and people who like the Federal Reserve and people who like uh, modern monetary theory and like trust the government say, well, we had to do that because you know, really bad things would have happened if we didn't print all this money and give out all these stimulus checks and whatever. Um, and that may be true, uh, but, but it also has the subsequent effect of increasing the value of anything that's more scarce than the money that you're creating. So you create trillions of dollars of, of, of new uh, uh, money and you put it into the economy through, through, bank, through the banking system. And maybe not immediately, it doesn't lead to rapid inflation because a lot of people were scared and they were stuck at home and maybe they lost their job temporarily or their earnings were, were um, gone. But then later, the, the economy starts to recover. And that's what we're seeing now, right? So like Nebraska just posted the lowest uh, unemployment rate like in recorded history, right? 1.9%. Utah is at like 2.2%. There literally aren't enough people for all the jobs they need. So wages are going up, right? So you, you want to work at Walmart or Target or McDonald's now, it's not nine bucks anymore. Yeah, It's 15 bucks, 17 bucks, 19 bucks, right? To, to go work at these places, Starbucks, et cetera, which I think is a good trend because for the last 40 or 50 years, there's been this disconnect between what really wealthy people experience and what the middle class and the poor experience uh, in the economy, right? Where people own assets, people who run technology companies and run hedge funds and stuff like that, their, their earnings have gone up dramatically, but the earnings of the sort of average person have been sort of stuck yeah. on an inflation adjusted basis. And so now finally, guess what? No matter how many billions you have, if you show up at the restaurant and nobody nobody's willing to show up for work, you, you're not going to get served, right? And so there's like fundamental physical realities in the universe. Like if there aren't enough of a, of a certain good or there aren't enough workers to come to work, that no matter how much money you have, there's no price that people will pay uh, that you'll be able to pay in order to uh, secure that good or service. And so that disconnect is being filled now with rising prices, right? So if a lot of people want something um, and there aren't as many people that can provide it and there aren't as many goods uh, available, the prices will go up. Um, and so I think, look, I'm not going to criticize the Fed and, and uh, you know politicians for doing what they did. Everybody was scared. Uh, we've proven now that you can print a lot of money and, and bond prices won't go nuts, right? So yields have continued to come down. There hasn't been a tremendous amount of financial stress yet uh, showing up in the system, but you're starting to see the backside of, of, hey, we we gave out all the stimulus, we kept rates low, we made it a very easy money environment, but now there seems to be almost a full recovery. I mean, stocks are at all-time highs, real estate's at all-time highs, et cetera, but yet rates are still at all-time lows. Right, and they're they're doing another stimulus package now around infrastructure, yeah. uh, which I suspect will ultimately. Do you get think through. that's going to exacerbate the current inflationary environment? It will. I mean, yeah. it's it's sort of inevitable. It's just math, right? Like if you 
if you take another trillion dollars or $2 trillion and put it into the economy, maybe not the next day, but within a quarter or two, it'll filter through to the price of everything. I mean, you're already seeing shortages uh, in a lot of areas, right? You're seeing supply chain issues. Some of the, some of the supply chain issues have nothing to do with, with monetary inflation, but they're related yeah. in the sense Right. And, and so, you know, used car prices were, were going nuts uh, earlier this year. I think that's going to start hopefully calming down a little bit. Um, but there's going to be, you know, when you put $2 trillion into the economy, there's, there's going to be asset price inflation that shows up in a lot of different areas. I think that's just sort of inevitable. Even the Fed's admitting that what they said originally was that it was transitory. And now they're saying, well, you know, it might go on uh, longer than, than, than we expected it to. Yeah. So tie it back to, the thought process behind how people should think about securing their purchasing power, right? Like, why is it unintelligent to keep savings in cash? Because again, this is something that I'm embarrassed to admit took me forever to figure out. I just had way too much of my savings in cash. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you think about when you think about cash, like its primary use case is as a medium of exchange, right? So, Cash is useful if you need to go buy coffee right now, right? So the easiest way to buy coffee is to have $5 in a debit, a debit card or whatever, right? So you just swipe the card and you walk away with your coffee. The problem with keeping that $5 in a bank account, as, as we all know, is that most banks are paying like five basis points, 0.05%, right? Or 0.1%. Negligible. Yeah, interest, right? Nothing so that's going to make a difference. So. If you leave it in the bank, you're basically standing still, but what's happening with asset price inflation, what's happening with monetary inflation, it's going up by, depending on what asset you're interested in. Like if you live in Austin, Texas, you need 30% more money this year to buy the same house last year, right? So, same is true in every market, pretty much. And, and so while your nominal value of your savings, $5 is the same, the purchasing power has fallen as denominated in a house in Austin by 30%. Yep. Denominated in the S and P 500 by 25. percent The S and P 500 is up another 25 percent since we last spoke. Now, I want to talk about that separately too, because within the S and P 500, the, the market is a market of stocks, right? Yep. A lot of those technology companies I called out in our last uh, Q4 discussion have absolutely cratered since. There's a few of them that have held up, but a lot of them are down. You know, I have a whole list of them that are down 40, okay. 50, 60, 70 percent off all-time high. So within the market. Um, there are things that are, have gone down, but most things in the economy have gone up, like your ability to buy bread or eggs or milk or gas, right? Or housing or education, or healthcare, those things are going up in value. So if you leave your savings, right, which I think is almost like a misnomer because it's like a melting ice cube now, yeah. and especially with the inflation this high, it's not really oh, savings. such it's, a good point. It's, it's, it's the it's, opposite of it. Yeah. yeah. It's just a good way to lose purchasing power effectively. It's a guaranteed loss of purchasing power instrument. Whereas something like Bitcoin is, is in reverse, it's sort of a guaranteed increase in purchasing power instrument because of the supply cap and the certainty around um, the monetary stability of that asset relative to the uncertainty in the monetary stability in the alternative, which is you know USD. Gold's another example of a relatively scarce asset. The, the problem with gold is it's just much less useful in the modern economy than Bitcoin. And gold's essentially been flat this year and Bitcoin's up close to 100%. It's up uh, almost 4X from our conversation uh, last November last when I highly months. recommended it at about 15,000. <laughs> um, know, It hit an all-time all high of 69,000 a couple of weeks ago. 
and I would argue Bitcoin is cheaper today than it was in November of last year, whereas equities are in aggregate uh, about 25% more overvalued than they were last time we spoke. Uh-huh. Um, so Bitcoin has gotten actually cheaper on a relative basis and equities on in aggregate have gotten more expensive, although there are equities within the market that I still think are relatively cheap. And I called out a few of those names, including CVS last fall. I think when we talk CVS was 67 uh, bucks today, it's 93 and it's still cheap, right? So being a value investor is not easy because you have to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing, but it, but it works over long periods. So typically inflation hedge assets are things like gold and real estate and S and P what makes Bitcoin differentiated from those or what in your mind makes it better in this type of monetary environment? The biggest, well, there's a, a bunch of great things about Bitcoin, but the maybe perhaps the most uh, profound thing is that the supply and demand of Bitcoin are completely unrelated. And every other asset you just mentioned, the supply can be manipulated based on the demand. So what happens when there's a high demand for gold? Gold miners invest more money in CapEx, they dig more mines, they extract more gold faster. What happens with condos? Uh, developers, when there's a high demand, they build more condos, right? What, what happens with equities? Uh, at the end of a cycle, when there's a lot of demand for equities, they take more companies public, which is happening right now, by the way. Uh, there's an increase in the amount of public companies in the last year for the first time in, in a long time. So there's actually a, a small uh, increase now relative, because it used to be for the last 10 years that a lot of these companies were getting acquired by private equity, taken private uh, rolled up MA transactions. And so the number of tickers that the average person could access has actually declined until now. And this is a sign of a late stage uh, bull market. Bitcoin is different than that because the supply schedule is set by the code itself, right? So when Satoshi designed Bitcoin, he designed a lot of really elegant things, he or she uh, or a group designed a lot of very elegant things, including the difficulty adjustment, the supply curve, the usage of public private key cryptography, putting that all together in a package that leads to this sound money network, right? Which is, which is amazing. It's one of the most amazing things that's ever been designed because it, because it leverages so many different technologies in, in one form to allow people to secure their wealth into the future across time and space. Um, but the, this, this disconnect where no matter how much people want Bitcoin, no matter how many of your friends tell you they want to buy Bitcoin over the next six months, there's not going to be a, a change in the amount of Bitcoin that's created. That's unique. Now, yeah. related to that, but separate is the fact that no one person controls Bitcoin. So there's effectively a rough consensus, right? Between the nodes and the users and the miners. And so there are upgrades, technology upgrades that happen on the Bitcoin network but they have to be approved in such a kind of broad consensus oriented way that very few things that are actually um, you know, controversial ever get changed. And so a lot of the certainty around that supply curve comes from the, the way in which Bitcoin is distributed widely, the fact that there are multiple different uh, groups of people that are control of different parts of the stack. Like, and anybody can come on and off the Bitcoin network in a permissionless way. You can, you and I could spin up a node today, but then tomorrow we could go offline. We could start running miners next week, but then a week from now we could turn them off. Um, and so for that reason, you can have a, a significant trust in Bitcoin's ability to continue to run that fundamental code into the future, which ensures the scarcity of the asset. 
I can't tell you what gold miners are going to do next year. I can't tell you what condo yeah. developers are going to do next year. I can't tell you what investment bankers and company execs and, and, and board members are going to want to do. It's going to be based on the market. Bitcoin does not change based on the market. And yeah. that by itself, the fact that it stands in place when the rest of the world loses its mind is why Bitcoin has so much value and why it will continue to go up in a parabolic and exponential uh, form over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, it's so interesting, man. And I ask basically because it's a, a personal question. It's like, well, what should I do, right? And it's like, it's hard to justify putting money anywhere else, it feels like at this point. I think it's a good question. I mean, you have to have a reason too, unless you're a professional investor uh, and you have some other reason um, to, to own other assets, the hurdle rate to beat Bitcoin, which is compounding historically at well over 100 to 200 percent Kagers. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that that will continue indefinitely, because as Bitcoin gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the the chance that it's going to continue to perform as it does historically actually goes down. Right. And, and so you, people need to be clear on that as Bitcoin gets bigger, the returns eventually will go down. The volatility will eventually go down. But we're still really early. Yeah. Right. And the, like, when you think about the long term adoption curve of Bitcoin, we're still one, two, three percent of the way there. Um, and so Bitcoin could continue to grow at a 50, 60, 80 percent Kager, which would be like owning Tesla over the last 10 years or like uh, Amazon over Amazon, the last two decades. Amazon in yeah. 1999. And yeah. you're doing it without company specific risk. So yeah. you're, you own an asset that has no management team, right? There's no board that can issue too many stock options, right? There's no facilities that could catch on fire. There's no executives that could be subpoenaed and sent to Washington, D.C. and sit in front of a room of people or Wall Street Journal exposés about the bad culture of the company, <laughs> yeah. and, right? Like there's none of that. So you, you have all of the characteristics of a high growth technology type of investment, like a venture investment, but with none of the risk factors, that you Amazing. typically get in those types of companies. So. Wow. So well said. So, so fascinating. So let's talk about the state of the market. Again, last time you were here was exactly a year ago. Bitcoin was about 15,000 per coin. Then it went absolutely crazy. After you came on the show, we'll pretend like that was the instigating factor for the run-up that we saw in the spring. It touched 64,000, I think, in the spring. And then in true Bitcoin fashion, nuked back down to, I think, 30,000. And then it's been on 28. The bottom, the bottom in the 28 range. So, yeah. so it's been on a steady climb basically since then. Reached all-time high, as you said, a couple of weeks ago, about 69,000. I was hoping we were on our way to 100,000 plus, but we are now back down to about 57,000. So talk us through just in general macro view, how you've seen the last 12 months in the market and what the status of the market is today. Well, it's exactly what I said last time we talked, it's all liquidity driven, right? So you got to ignore the headlines and just look at where the money, follow the money, right? Look look at where the money's gone and where where it's coming from. And the money spigot is not turned off. The Fed is shutting down the the bond buying program over the next, call it five, six months, right? And so um, sometime in the spring, they won't be buying $120 billion of, of bonds per month, but the fiscal stimulus will continue, right? Uh, because we're about to prove another couple trillion dollars of, of support essentially for the market. And actually fiscal stimulus tends to impact uh, the economy faster um, than, than the monetary intervention. So uh, there's no reason to believe that in the very short term, from a macro standpoint, that there's going to be anything surprising. Like we're seeing what I would consider to be a mini melt up in the S and P. 
uh, you know, the, the S and P is higher by about 25% for the year. 50 plus percent of that is coming from like six or seven stocks. I think I talked about this last time. It's basically like Amazon, Microsoft, yeah. Google, Facebook, you know, Tesla. If you were lucky enough to just own those stocks, including like Tesla and Shopify, like you've done really, really well at some point, right. That, that, that'll stop working. It's already stopped working for for Peloton, which is down 70, 80% from back then. Zoom down 18% today. It's down almost, I think 70% off its all-time highs. You know, Zillow's gotten absolutely crushed. A lot of these, Teladoc, Roku, like Kathy Wood, you know, Arc, Arc, uh, Trendy, Tech Stocks have sort of already given back a big chunk of their gains and they were wildly overvalued. And I did allude to that uh, before. And so, I, I think we're entering a situation where the money, it's going to get a little bit harder incrementally, like every few months right now, it's going to get harder. It's going to become a harder money environment. Um, bond yields are going to go up. It's going to be a bad time to own bonds. It's going to be a bad time to own overpriced tech stocks. It's going to be a better time to own like dirtier industries and value oriented companies. So like on the dirty side, like energy stocks have done really well this year. I think they could continue to do well. Right. Uh, tobacco companies like runners are going to hate this, but like they have some of the highest <laughs> yields in the market. If you're retired and you need an 8% yielder, that's one of the best places to find it. Is it really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, unfortunately, right. That's where that's so where counterintuitive. I, I know nobody who smokes anymore. Yeah. I'm uh, either do I, and I hate, I hate smoking personally. I don't own these stocks personally, but yeah. a lot of retired people do. Um, the areas where I do think offer a lot of value, but like on a more ESG friendly basis are areas like healthcare and consumer staples. So if the environment gets harder and there really is some sort of liquidity crisis or macro crisis, you want to be in healthcare names. So I recommended CVS last year. I recommended Bristol Myers Squibb. Bristol Myers Squibb is extremely cheap here. Like buying BMY at 57 bucks, like over the next three years, it'll be one of the best ways not to lose money in the market, no matter what happens. Um, on the staple side, I still really, I mentioned this to you last year. I really like alcohol as a long-term bet. Yeah. The premiumization trend is just going to continue. I think Heineken looks really cheap and well-positioned here. They're being really aggressive about expanding into Africa, which is one of the biggest uh, upside opportunities in the world right now. Um, Constellation uh, Brands, ticker STZ. My wife I used st- to work there. Yeah, I <laughs> they're, still- they're, they're really pivoting into cannabis too. Yeah, they've got a, a 30 plus percent, um, position in, uh, in uh, canopy growth in yeah. Canada. They're talking about doing a deal uh, to to get into hard seltzers, potentially doing something with Monster, um, they're the largest uh, wine distributor in the U.S. Right? They've they've got the ownership of Corona Pacifica Modelo. Like a lot of runners like to drink a a light beer, uh, something that it's either like craft or Mexican beers. Right? I'm an IPA guy. Yeah, most people are craft. Much right? to my detriment. Yeah. Yeah, but you you get extra calories with that. Uh, so so those are like some of the areas where like no matter what happens with macro. I think if you own staples, you own healthcare, you avoid the expensive technology stocks and you own Bitcoin, you're going to be sitting pretty no matter what happens. But I would generally expect that conditions are going to get harder. There may be a drawdown at some point in the market. I mean, it's going to happen eventually, right? Like it didn't happen this year in any substantial way. It may not happen until next year or the year after, but I don't think you want to be investing today. Like you're not going to see one of those drawdowns. Yeah. So what about Bitcoin specifically? Because I don't know, it's just been a a strange year, right? With the run up all the way to 64,000 in the spring, and then it dropped 50%. Of course, Bitcoin is known for its volatility. 
And at that point, it was like, okay, it's time to stop looking at Coinbase, prepare for winter, uh, just keep hodling and hodling and hodling for years. And then it went on another run. And so how are you thinking about the Bitcoin market right now? So I, I try not, to, I try to stay away from too much short-term prognostication around Bitcoin. Because <laughs> I'm not asking you to predict. Yeah, I mean, but... Bitcoin defies all predictions. You know, plan B has a million and a half followers on Twitter and yep. like has a stock to flow model that's widely followed. And um, it looks like it's about to break uh, unless we yeah. see like a massive rally in the next the next week. And so, so, so just for the listeners, I'll, and I'll link to his account in the, uh, in the show notes, but his prediction was that this month in November of 2021, the price would be 98,000. That was a floor price, like an absolute minimum, basically, is what he said. And next yeah. month, he thought the floor price would be 135,000. And right now, we're sitting at 57. So there's a long so, way to go. So I think, um, look, uh, like I'm involved with the Bitcoin miner, right? One of the biggest ones uh, in the world. And what I'm seeing is billions and billions of billions of dollars of CapEx across the Bitcoin mining landscape going into equipment and energy assets, like data centers. And so the real world support for the Bitcoin price is only increasing, right? And so the, the real world uh, hash rate that's generated from these mining farms is what secures Bitcoin. It's what makes it valuable, what keeps it safe, right? Think of them as like the security guards for the, for the, for the network. And, and the more mining hash rate uh, that's devoted to the Bitcoin network um, the more Bitcoin can scale to higher and higher prices and really secure that value. And so the, the fundamentals you want to see that would support the Bitcoin price are, are all there. The Bitcoin mining is incredibly profitable. The, the new, the new uh, wallets coming online, like the, the number of new wallets that have at least 0.1 Bitcoin continues to go up. The number of companies in the, that are building infrastructure uh, continues to grow. Like you saw Coinbase went public this year. I, I do think uh, the Bitcoin maximalists don't like it when I say this, but I'm going to keep saying it. Like Coinbase is going to be one of the best uh, investments over the next five or ten years because you're literally remember that we're going to talk about that. Yeah, later. You're, you're literally yeah. you're literally got the tailwinds of the entire crypto market supporting that. Their balance sheet's going to grow like 20x right in the next five years. I mean, so it feels to me like it's going to be Goldman Sachs meets Wells Fargo meets. Citibank. Yeah, but, but with more of a technology, but even but more with, interesting, yeah, more like, with, as it's a like micro, Microsoft too. combined with yeah. Goldman Sachs, I, combined with Facebook, insane. because yeah. there's a net, there's a kind of network component to these assets that's embedded in you know a custodian that holds them, mm -hmm. right? So you, it's like Facebook combined with Microsoft combined with Goldman, um, and it's undervalued right now. I mean, it's still cheaper than owning Nasdaq or ICE. Uh, with much more growth, in my opinion. So I, I was, I, you saw me all summer. I was banging the drum on Coinbase at 220, 230, 240. Like this is, it's whatever it is, 315 today. It's still cheap. Um, it's going to go to into the thousands over the next five years. Um, so, so like, I, I just think, you know, at a high level, there's so many good things happening, but there's a lag time between all the investments in mining and infrastructure, right? All the new user growth and then the price. Because the price can be sort of played with in the short term by the futures market and by new institutions coming in and people shorting. None of that's going to matter, right? The fundamental value of Bitcoin is the fundamental value of Bitcoin. The price will oscillate uh, with volatility around that kind of line that you can draw the line. It's pretty much straight up to the right. Like the price will be 100000 at some point in the next year, right? Like when and how it gets there and whether it goes way past 100 or falls back below it or whatever is sort of irrelevant as long as you have a view to uh, where it should be in five or 10 years. Yeah. So I'm thinking more of like 
I still think the right prediction is a million dollars per Bitcoin before 2030. I think that's a pretty safe prediction because I don't know when it hits 100, but if it hits 100, it's probably going to hit 500. And if it hits 500, it's probably going to hit a million because it's really just math, right? And and if you can't shut Bitcoin off and you can't shut it down, then it's going to go to those levels because they're creating all the money you need, right? I didn't say there wouldn't be inflation in the dollar. Of course, there's going to be inflation in the dollar, right? Right. Some of that is embedded yeah, in that million dollar Who knows how much a million target. dollars that is actually worth at that point? Right? Exactly. But so it's a really easy prediction to make. I didn't say like, you're going to feel rich if you own one Bitcoin at a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. I just said one Bitcoin is going to trade at a million at a bucks. Million dollars, but so. the thing that I can predict with certainty is that one Bitcoin will always equal one Bitcoin. Yeah. And that I believe with 99.9% uh, accuracy that like they won't create more than 21 million Bitcoin. Yeah. If there's there's always fringe possibilities that someone figures out a way to hack the network or there's a double spending issue or quantum computing changes the paradigm before the core devs are able to update the code or whatever. But all of those things are are very unlikely. I give those like 0.1% uh, likelihood. So, so the short answer to your question is like, I've never been more bullish. Uh, I'm more bullish here at 57.5 than I was at 15. That was a good call a year ago. I think if we do this again a year from now, the price may shoot way past 100K and then come all the way back down. Who knows? We might yeah. only be up 2X next year at this time. Um, but, but you all, might- only 2X is- uh... Yeah, well, I mean, if you can double your money um, every year or two in investing, right? You're And you start with- And the alternative is making, what What did you say? 0.05% when yeah, keeping it in, a, in your Wells in Fargo account? account? Yeah. Or in equities, right? Like, if you're buying the S&P 500 fund today, it was a bad idea last year. It's every year that it goes up, it's becoming worse. So your expected returns in the future go down. It's inverse, mm-hmm. right? So as the price of the S&P 500 goes up, the expected returns in the future, all things being equal, would go down. And so buying an S&P 500 fund today, you're almost ensuring a, a, a mediocre return. I, I'd be surprised if you got a, a couple points over inflation. Now, inflation itself may, may keep the S&P, hold the S&P higher than otherwise would be, but it's not a very good investment, right? At the current level, there, yeah. are, there are stocks within the S&P 500 that might do 10 or 15%, but they're boring, right? There's stuff that nobody's interested in right now. Yeah. Again, it's like hard for me to understand why I shouldn't put every single dollar into this hyper volatile, you know, somewhat risky asset, but it seems like, as they say, volatility is the price you pay for performance. And as long as you keep this long-term mentality, the hodler mindset, that uh, over over the long term, things we work talked, out. Have we talked about risk at all? Because there's a couple of different ways you could look at risk. One one way is that risk is volatility, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's incorrect. But but there are definitely people who sort of believe that. Right, so they see something going up or down a lot, and they say that's risky. Um, I think the best definition of risk is is the the loss of uh, a permanent loss of capital. Yeah. Right. So, it, the biggest real risk as an individual is that you will behave badly when you see volatility, yeah. not the volatility itself. Right? Exactly. So, that so you'll people sell. see the asset go down and they sell, or they they buy options because they're trying to chase losses or whatever. Yeah. If you're not prone to do that, if you are a consistent, and I think a lot of ultra runners have this, they're just consistently executing their plan, right? And they train across months, across years, multiple cycles. And when they get to a hundred mile race, they have their drop bags and they have their strategy and they have their fueling and they've got their shoe change and everything's like executed. If you can think of your Bitcoin journey like that, 
and execute like that, you, you, you won't lose money. Just don't sell. It's it just, yeah, it's just <laughs> not easy. Yeah. And so like, it's really not that risky. In fact, I would say the risk is the opposite to not own Bitcoin. The biggest risk you yeah. can take in investing right now is to leave all your money in the bank and think that, think that that's savings, right? Yeah. Because you're going to be poor. You're going to be poor 10 or 20 years from now, because unless you're making a million or 2 million or $5 million a year, there's no way that you'll save enough relative to the monetary inflation, the asset price inflation happening in the broader economy for you to live the lifestyle you're imagining having five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you have to invest. Um, and you need to find the most intelligent ways to take advantage of that asset price inflation yeah. that, that the, on a risk adjusted basis. So yes, buying you could keep buying Netflix and Shopify here and Tesla, but I'm telling you at some point, there's a good chance you're down 80%. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Free Trail mobile app, the first mobile training platform specifically for trail runners. That's right, within the app, you'll find a library of informational and inspirational material dedicated to helping you along your trail running journey. This includes an abundance of training plans for runners of all skill and experience levels, along with how-to training content, strength and mobility sessions, yoga, breath work, women's health, and much, much more. Free Trail also has a very forward-facing community feature where members get to interact, share the highs and lows of their journey, and generally develop friendships with other like-minded people. We also do weekly Zoom calls for subscribers where we get to connect and learn from each other, which has absolutely become the highlight of my week. This month, we are running a 20% discount on the annual subscription, which will cost only $96, the equivalent of $8 a month. So go to freetrail.com, click the button that says download the app, and we would love to help and get to know you a little bit. Thanks so much. It's a perfect transition to something else that I wanted to talk about as it relates to risk. And that is this whole micro strategy phenomenon. And since the last time that we talked on the podcast, I mean, I'll let you explain it, but maybe, yeah, just explain who and what micro strategy is, what their thesis is as it relates to Bitcoin and risk, as you just explained it. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, you know, micro strategy has been a public company for like 30 plus years. Yeah. I remember back during the dot-com era, I remember reading about Michael Saylor back then and his yacht and his parties and stuff in the DC area. Um, you know, he, Michael Saylor has become one of the biggest proponents of Bitcoin. He's one of the longest tenured uh, technology CEOs. He founded the company. He decided to go all in uh, last year and he's purchased 110,000 Bitcoin, like with the current value of you know, close to $6 billion. I think the market cap's only slightly above that. And so it's effectively, he's hyper Bitcoinized his balance sheet. He's essentially converted all of his cash and, and all of his balance sheet assets into Bitcoin, which I think is something that more and more companies are going to do. It's effectively like if you, if you have a hundred dollars right now and you convert that hundred dollars into Bitcoin, you just hyper Bitcoinized your own balance sheet. Yeah. Right as a, as an individual, and you dramatically upgraded your positioning relative to monetary inflation. What's going to happen in the future? Now imagine that you're a publicly traded company that has uh, people that are willing to loan you billions of dollars to buy Bitcoin. You're effectively cannibalizing your existing asset base and turning that into this ultrasound hard asset, sound money on your balance sheet. And I think he's. We look back ten years from now, he's going to go down as one of the most. Uh, you, you know, one of the most interesting 
you know, uh, strategists and business leaders in, in history. And I would argue that he almost had to do that because he had been a public company CEO for so long and he had this kind of middling software business that nobody cared about. <laughs> yeah. And so and he's been a billionaire for a long time. But it was like a $500 million a year business. Like sure, it was a, sure. a, a yeah, real business. Uh, I'm not saying it's not substantial, but if you've been a billionaire for a long time, I know this is hard to imagine, but if you've been a billionaire for a long time, at some point you're like, crap, what's my legacy? Like people are just going to remember well, me as this middling billionaire. His, the whole reasoning behind this thesis and the strategy for their business was because exactly what you just mentioned, the risk of keeping all of their cash in cash or keeping mm-hmm. all of keeping their, their corporate treasury in cash. Well, he just did the math. He just did the math and said, look, like every year I leave it in there, we're losing, you know, $50 million or $100 million, right? Which is a huge chunk of our reported profits. Elon Musk just alluded to that um, on stage. It's effectively, like summer. losing 15% of your wealth a year. Right. Because of the, the cost of capital. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, Tesla's losing money in Europe. They're literally paying money to store their, uh, their cash there. So it's just the beginning of a wave of corporations that are going to wake up and realize uh, that they need to hyper Bitcoinize. It's already happening in the crypto space. So, like Coinbase is starting to borrow money, like issue billion dollar debt rounds, and they're turning around and buying more directly, but also, um, you know, using profits to acquire more assets organically. The Bitcoin miners are all doing this now. So Marathon and Hut and others are hodling at industrial scale a, a lot more of their Bitcoin. So Bitcoin miners used to sell the Bitcoin that they would earn when they want to block. Yeah. And then they would pay for their power costs and buy more miners. And now they're a lot of them, the big ones are, are hodling uh, that Bitcoin. And so, you know, that's not that Bitcoin's never coming back to market. So it was already a scarce asset that's only growing under 2% a year inflation rate and falling every every four years. But now you have these big players that are just gobbling up Bitcoin with the intent of holding it forever. Yeah. Fascinating, man. So as you've mentioned, we've seen Tesla and Square and MicroStrategy and a few other com- companies, publicly traded companies, add it to their balance sheet. At what point do we see a critical mass of Fortune 500 CEOs understanding that it's irresponsible not to allocate to to Bitcoin? And actually, maybe more interestingly, this just popped into my head. I mean, for somebody like me, you know, a fledgling small business owner on the front lines of uh, new entrepreneurship, how should I be thinking about allocating the cash that we bring in? Well, if you're cash flow positive, you should probably be taking a big chunk of it and buying Bitcoin on a regular basis, like DCA, just like an individual. Uh, we're doing that at Eaglebrook. So Eaglebrook gets paid from our custodian partners in in Bitcoin and we don't sell it. So we're starting to hodl Bitcoin. So every organization, individual, right, government in the world um, has a balance sheet. You have a household balance sheet. Companies have corporate balance sheet. Governments have their own balance sheet, right? Every one of those uh, person's going to have to figure out, organizations, governments is going to have to figure out what the right strategy is here. But ultimately the game theory of it is that like you would want to move quicker, right? So like the fact that Tim Cook at Apple like understands it a little bit now. First mover's advantage, yeah. Yeah, and owns some like, does he want to spend a lot of time on it right now? Does it, does it rise to the level of importance of like just surviving a competitive market? Maybe not. Uh, but if he could just spend like a couple weeks on it, I think he would get to a point where he's like, it doesn't make any sense not to start putting this on the balance sheet because the alternative is we're losing money. So I think it's, you know, the timeline is 
you need a couple Michael Saylors, you need a couple Elon Musk, right? It starts to raise the dialogue. People start to run the numbers on it. There's, there's a growing group of CFOs who understand the tax implications and the accounting implications, right? Because there are issues for corporations holding Bitcoin in terms of, especially if you have public shareholders and you need to report earnings, you know, if the, if Bitcoin goes down, it can create volatility in your earnings. Bitcoin goes up, depending on how you structure it, you may not be able to take advantage of it uh, on a, on the positive side. So there's some issues there that need to be adjusted, but I think that happens over the next five years. One analogy to this would be, um, you know, imagine a token's not traded on Coinbase yet. So it's harder to get access to it. But you know what happens once the token is traded on Coinbase, the price goes up. And so if you're willing to do the work before the masses can buy it on Coinbase to like find that asset, buy it and custody it, um, you get the pop, you get the benefit of that future pop. That's yeah. what the benefit's going to be of corporations and governments that figure this out before the accounting standards are there, before there's comfort in corporate boardrooms, before it's sort of the Overton window of acceptance of corporations doing this has moved and made it acceptable reality. Same thing's going to happen with financial planners, right? Financial planners who today say, oh, don't touch Bitcoin. It's too risky. They're going to start saying, well, it's okay if you want to have 1%. And then in a few years, it's going to be, oh, it's okay if it's 3% yeah, or 5%. Yeah. And then eventually it's going to be 20% for everybody. Um, but by that point, Bitcoin will be $2 million a coin. And so do you want to be the person who, like Gretzky, skates to where the puck's going? Or do you want to be the person that waits to be told that it's safe 10 years from now, long after everybody already figured it out? Like, yeah. My view is it's better to be early, to go deep, understand this stuff, uh, and then may, place your bet. I think for most people like the real answer of how much they should own is close to 20%. So that's like what my mom and my father-in-law and my aunt, who I advise informally in their retirements, they're retired, right? They live entirely off of their income streams and from their investments in social security. Um, and they're all at, at least 20% uh, Bitcoin. And that sounds very aggressive today, but I bet if you replay this in five years, you'll be wondering why more people didn't do that before. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk more about like personal allocation in a bit with the caveat that this is not investment advice, but I'm also curious just like how you view the kind of social environment around Bitcoin right now, as we've seen pro athletes start to take their salaries in Bitcoin. In fact, just yesterday, Odell Beckham Jr. It was announced he's going to be taking a hundred percent of his salary. In OBJ, Bitcoin. buddy. OBJ, OBJ, pioneer. We saw Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Steph Curry all signed big endorsement deals with FTX, uh, crypto exchange. Crypto.com just named the Staples Center. Staples Center, a 20-year deal worth some ridiculous amount of money. So it feels like it's really finally penetrating pop culture and public conversation, you know, with the likes of some of the best athletes in the world. And I'm I'm curious, yeah, like how you envision that impacting the mass adoption of this asset in particular? I mean, you sort of just answered your own question. Yeah. Right. Like just three, four years ago, anything you just said would have sounded outlandish, crazy. Right. And now the Overton window of acceptance has moved and nobody's surprised that people want Bitcoin. Tom yeah. Brady has Bitcoin and Steph Curry has Bitcoin. And uh, what's his name from Green Bay? Aaron Rodgers has Bitcoin now. And OBJ, the original Bitcoin junkie, uh, is going to have Bitcoin, right? <laughs> like, like th this is cool, but it's if you study Bitcoin, it, it's going to happen like this for the next 20 years, except 
in the future, it's going to be the government of XYZ country has made it, uh, you know, legal tender that just happened in El Salvador. El Salvador is literally going to be mining, uh, you know, Bitcoin using volcano energy and they're creating a city, right? There, there's already Bitcoin beach. You can, you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere. It's, it's legal tender alongside the dollar in El Salvador. That's just the beginning. They're going to be countries that buy billions of dollars of Bitcoin, hundreds of billions of dollars of Bitcoin and just carry it on their balance sheet. Most of the large uh, S&P 500 companies that survive over the next 20 years are all going to have Bitcoin. Every celebrity that you can think of is going to own Bitcoin. Like everybody's going to have Bitcoin. And today it's still small. That's what you call asymmetry, right? Because if you've done the work to understand that, you can sort of predict these things in advance. You know, last year I came on here and I, I was very bullish about Bitcoin at 15K. But I remember the year before I was very bullish at five. And, you know, back in 2017, I was very bullish at 2,500, right? It's once you do the work though, it's it's easy. So nobody should be surprised by this. Like this is just the very beginning of what's gonna be a multi-decade wave of adoption. Um, and again, it just comes down to utility and adoption. It comes down to the math of, of scarcity. There's no, there's no magic to it, right? It's just like, once you understand what Bitcoin is from first principles and you understand how it works, you can understand why people are going to choose using the incentives available to them. They're gonna choose a path that optimizes their future wealth. And holding dollars is not the way to do that, right? Holding overpriced assets is not the way to do that. So um, more and more people are going to be doing exactly what these athletes uh, are doing. Yeah. So clearly you're a Bitcoiner and, you know, you believe that it's the best crypto asset in existence. It's certainly the dominant crypto asset. It's, It's the best money. It's the best money. It's the best money in existence. I, I didn't but, say it was the best crypto asset. I think I okay. know where you're going with this. All right. Well, okay. So yeah, you know exactly where I'm going with this. But just to finish my thought, finish the question here. Obviously, there's now thousands of other digital currencies around, you know, and some are clearly scams and some seem to have legitimate use cases in the world. Talk about sort of like the whole crypto landscape beyond just Bitcoin specifically. And yeah, how you so, think about it. So uh, I think Bitcoin's already won as, as sound money, digital sound money. It's the digital reserve currency. It's the one thing you can count on having value in the future because it doesn't really need to do much other than continue to confirm blocks, block after block every 10 minutes. That's all it needs to do. It doesn't need to provide a whole lot of additional utility, although with Lightning Network and other layer twos, you'll be able to do more interesting things with payments, et cetera, in the future. Um, something like Ethereum is more about providing this kind of decentralized or semi-decentralized computing platform where application developers can build new types of applications using things like DeFi, right? Which are kind of decentralized financial applications where you can lend and you can borrow and you can, right? You can create new uh, financial products and derivatives that aren't controlled by any central party. Um, so basically what you mean by that, just for the less sophisticated listener is that you can do lending and things like that, as you just mentioned, without a centralized bank intermediary. Yeah, correct. Correct. And so you you couldn't do that on the Goldman platform because you'd still have Goldman making the fundamental underwriting decision and controlling the collateral and all that in these in using DeFi on top of Ethereum, you're now able to deposit into a protocol that has nobody controlling it right? Where there's rules that are established by the protocol. So if you meet the rules and you deposit X number of Ethereum into that protocol, you will get paid whatever your APY is, right? There's no underwriting for that. There's no like, hey, you need to be friends with this banker who works in the New York office, right? 
It's not based on your past history with the bank. It's just based on if you have access or control of that Ethereum, then, then you can participate. Um, that's just one example. There's also a thing called NFTs, which everybody's been hearing about, non-fungible tokens. It's a whole interesting area. A lot of that's built on top of Ethereum, uh, at least today. And so people are taking artwork, they're taking digital collectibles, and they're establishing value based on some sort of unique scarcity, right? So if I have ownership of this NFT, then you can still look at it. You can still download it, but it, but I own it. I control. Think of it like owning like a, you know, a classical piece of artwork where there's yeah. only, it's a one of one, right? There's one Mona Lisa, right? Uh, and, and if you have that Mona Lisa, it has a certain value because you can't create more of them. And so NFTs are about creating scarcity around something in the digital world that historically there's been no way to stop people from creating more. Like in a video game, for example, there, if you want a sword in a certain video game, there's no way to guarantee that the, ma the maker of that game won't print more swords. But with an NFT, you have some certainty that they won't print more of this specific sword that Dude, I bought. God, the internet, it's just fascinating. The internet it? is undefeated. This is, it's so fascinating. So how do you think about an asset like Ethereum within your personal investment strategy? So I, I'll just say what I did, right? So last August, I put $44,500 into Ethereum at like 300 bucks. And the only reason why I did that, I viewed it as like a venture style investment because I was working with all these crypto hedge funds like Paradigm and Polychain and Pantera, right? And Distributed Global and some of the best investors in the multi-coin, right? Some of the best investors in the world. Multi-coin was really early into Solana, which has been one of the best performing assets. Uh, worked Silly. with Delphi Digital who understood... Uh, who understood this uh, Axie Infinity game before almost anyone. And so like I was working with those guys for three years. And the craziest thing is I didn't buy more of this stuff. Uh, I, I just didn't, I was working with them. I didn't see the point of, and also overexposing to the asset, but I should have just bought everything those guys were, were talking about back then. Cause a big chunk of those things are the biggest projects um, in the world. And so I just, in August of last year, I was out for a run at Mount Woodson, my normal uh, running spot in San Diego. And I just, it, like, it was an epiphany. It was like, wait, you've been working with these Ethereum focused firms for so many years. You don't own any Ethereum right now. Like just go home and buy some. So I just went back to my truck and I bought $44,000 of Ethereum. It's up about 12 X, uh, a little over 12 X from my purchase <laughs> So you bought price. it at about 300. And today I think it's at yeah. about 4,200. 40, whatever it is. I mean, I have like a little over half a million just of Ethereum, but it, to me, it was just like my standard uh, venture, but yeah. Right. Because I, because it's I good, have no idea. Bet. I have no idea whether it's going to work. I have no idea whether it's going to survive the attack of these other layer ones. Cause now there's Solana, right. And Avalanche and Cosmos and Definity and Tezos. I mean, there's like 20 or 30 viable potential alternatives. Some of them are faster. Some so of is them that are... where you see the difference between Bitcoin and an asset like Ethereum where there, in your opinion, there doesn't seem to be a legit viable credible competitor to Bitcoin, but correct. Bitcoin is Bitcoin is money. There's no alternative. Although the Ethereum people like to call Ethereum ultrasound money. It can't be sound money. If you're constantly manipulating the monetary supply, which they're doing all the time, the developers it's, it's more run more like a Silicon Valley startup. Whereas Bitcoin is a truly decentralized network with yeah. no one uh, source of control anywhere along that network. You, you, you have a founder with Ethereum. Right. There's a sort of immaculate like conception a foundation. To yeah. There's something called path dependency, which is really important in crypto, which Bitcoin uniquely has because Bitcoin became money without anyone really paying attention. Like nobody paid attention to 
to Bitcoin, the mass market until like 2017. Yeah. And by then it had seven years to organically grow itself without a pre-mine where people organically opted into using Bitcoin as money and as a savings and store value method uh, without any noise, without a lot of press, without a lot of BS, right? And it sort of organically evolved. A lot of these other projects, they were VC funded. They're more, they look more like Silicon Valley startups or constant changes being made to the network based on stakeholder needs. They use a, a proof of stake as a consensus mechanism, most of them. And so that becomes highly centralized over time where the largest holders of the protocol end up having the most control. Whereas with Bitcoin, it sort of diffuses itself organically over time. And uh, as it grows- Proof of work consensus. Yeah, proof of work, which is which is a totally it's, different We don't need to go into all that stuff. That's, yeah. that's a little bit too complicated, esoteric. Um, so, but like, as you think about- Bitcoin, of course, at this point, the use case that has been most associated with it and that I think nobody could argue has borne out over time is this store of value, sort of digital as, gold. as they say, the digital gold. Do you think it'll ever be used as a medium of exchange as it has been sort of in El Salvador to this point? Or is it just a savings asset? So there's there's a couple things going on. Um, one is that the Bitcoin network is self-monetizing right over the last 10, 11 years. And, and so in fiat terms, the value is going up dramatically, right? There's, there's, there's no way to argue against that. It's up like a billion percent from the first trade back in like 2009 or 10, right? And so it actually, like if you're optimizing for your own um, incentives, there's no reason to spend Bitcoin, right? So just keep that in That's mind. That's what because, I'm saying, man. Right. Never and, so, sell. And, and I think if you look at the adoption curve, there's a good chance that you really wouldn't want to sell Bitcoin until like 2030 or 2035. Yeah. So, so it's not that you couldn't use it as a medium of exchange, just that you shouldn't want to. If you're smart, you, you shouldn't even consider doing that. Why would you spend, if you have dollars still in your bank account, you should spend those first. You don't spend your Bitcoin on <laughs> coffee. Because they're depreciating. Yeah. In the meantime, while this network is monetizing and the volatility is still high, you can spend dollars at some point in 2030 or 2035 you could start spending Bitcoin and you'll be buying a lot ah. more real world goods at that time. But remember the infrastructure around layer twos like lightning will be more evolved. So you'll have an application on your phone that just instantly scans, pulls the money in a, in a permissionless way. Well, sorry, not a permissionless way in that case, because it would be, you'd be providing permission to pull it potentially directly out of a wallet that then that wallet is connected and reconciles on chain uh, uh, later. Right with your actual, uh, you know, savings where you where you save Bitcoin. So there'll be there'll be some sort of method where, um, you know, people are able to spend Bitcoin on a daily basis, uh, and and maybe you'll want to then because the volatility will be lower, at least as as it ref, as it's reflected in real world assets. Remember, the maybe hyper the dollar Bitcoin, won't exist at that point. Exactly. So so as you hyper Bitcoinize, more and more things will be priced in Bitcoin. And so the the value of Bitcoin becomes stable because it's being priced in more things other than the dollar. Yeah, because right now you're in the U.S. You're only really pricing Bitcoin against the dollar because you're not spending on anything else, and the dollar is actually more volatile in terms of its monetary policy than Bitcoin. We know exactly what's going to happen with Bitcoin. We don't know how many dollars the Fed will print. We don't know how many assets they're going to buy. We don't know how much stimulus politicians are going to put into the push into the economy, but we do know how much Bitcoin there is. Yeah. Um, so, but it, but if everything was priced in Bitcoin, let's say you bought your next house in 2030 in Bitcoin. Well, guess what? The volatility of Bitcoin is going to go down quite a bit because it's, yeah. it's benchmarked to much more things. 
Fascinating. So let's talk about personal allocation of whatever you're willing to disclose. I guess what I'll say on the front end is that, you know, I got into this space back in 2016, I think it was, and I've slowly and steadily invested over time. And, you know, at this point, far more than 50% of my net worth is in Bitcoin and Ethereum specifically. I have a few other smaller positions and some other assets that I totally 100% view as gambling. And Bitcoin and Ethereum have both performed incredibly well for me. And it's like to the point where it's like, I don't know why I have a 401k anymore. I don't know why I have a Wealthfront account anymore. It's like I kind of want to just sort of move everything over. Of course, understanding that it's a highly volatile uh, asset in the short term, at least. Mm -hmm. um, is that stupid for me to have 50% of my net worth wrapped up in this? And, and maybe whatever you're willing to disclose about your own strategy, I think the listeners would love to hear. I, I don't think so. I think, I think uh, the fact that you've allowed it to happen organically is the best uh, proof point. The, and I should say, I, I've never sold anything. Never once yeah, have I ever yeah. sold anything. And, and I'm in the same boat as you. Like what happened was I started at like 3%, 5% four years ago. And now it's like 40 plus percent uh, collectively. Now I have a lot of other assets like private company stakes and stuff that is a liquid that I can't pull, right? So like I'm on boards of companies like, so th that's a whole nother Ball wax, but I've continued to maintain equities because I am fundamentally a a business builder and investor, right? And so uh, it doesn't make sense for me to be a hundred percent in Bitcoin. Although I do think it's unlikely that most of the equities I own will 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 beat Bitcoin and Ethereum at least so far that they haven't come close. Uh, so I think you know if you started with five percent or ten percent, it's grown to fifty percent. Good for you. That's a that's a high grade problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the question at some point is should you should you trim that back to some level. And I would say for now, while these networks are still self-monetizing and while you're right, uh, you should probably leave it alone, right? Like the, all the billionaire traders, like the best investors in history talk about position sizing and conviction. And one of the hardest things to do is just let your winners run. And we've got winners in our portfolio right now. If you own Bitcoin and Ethereum, your, your, your winners are running and it's tempting to take profits because it feels safer to move it back to fiat. But remember you're moving money from the scarce area to the area where they're printing more of it, right? So you, you'd be selling the scarce thing to buy the thing that's uh, basically unlimited, right? Because they're just going to print more dollars. So you feel safe to have that money back in your bank account, but then you just increase the size of your shrinking uh, ice cube, yeah, melting ice cube. So I think, I think you're doing fine. I would just leave it alone. And I think for most people, you choose initial allocation and you just leave it alone for five or 10 years. And if it becomes 90% of your net worth organically, fine. Cool. So I want to circle back to something we mentioned earlier, and that is diversification within the space with stocks like Coinbase and MicroStrategy and these mining companies that you've mentioned now a few times. But before we get to it on this subject, you just made me think of this interesting anecdote that I've heard in a number of places. And uh, it sounds true to me, although I, I can't uh, put my finger on the exact source or where I heard it, but that being the fact that like at Fidelity, that the top performing portfolios that they have are people who are dead because those people mm. were completely inactive and they just let things compound over time. And so that's basically the strategy that I'm taking is just do nothing, yeah, no, no, consistently the, add and do nothing all the research and hopefully shows, not die. Yeah. All the research shows that that's the right 
uh, strategy more than anything. If you just leave your investments alone, you'll, you'll outperform most people that are more active. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt that that's true. Now, if all of your money's in Robinhood, hood stock right now and uh, uh, go down the list here beyond meat, Zillow, Peloton, et cetera, because you, and you bought them all expensive. Like I, I can't speak for that. Maybe you should change your portfolio, yeah. but if you're indexed to like equities broadly and you're indexed to crypto broadly through Bitcoin and ETH, like an S and P fund an emerging markets fund, a Bitcoin and an Ethereum position probably should be left alone for 10 yeah. years. Cause then you're not, you're not really making too many directional bets. You're just saying, I believe that sound money is the future. I believe that decentralized computing is the future. I believe that emerging markets will continue to grow. And I believe that us companies will do will collectively grow over 10 years. That's it. That's the only bet you're making. Yeah. So don't transfer my life savings into Dogecoin and Shiba Inu is basically what you're, what you're saying. I, I wouldn't, trans- <laughs> I, I would not touch and like, I think even, even anything beyond Bitcoin is risky for the average person, which is why my mom doesn't own even Ethereum. Yeah. Obviously the returns for Ethereum have been exceptional, but going forward, there's a real risk that Ethereum fails. And I think there's close to zero risk that Bitcoin fails. And that's yeah. why I'm comfortable recommending Bitcoin to an audience of people, but I never yeah. recommend Ethereum, even though I've made money in it. Really? I've, huh. I've made money in other areas that are that are risky too, but I wouldn't have my mom investing a retirement portfolio. Fascinating. Yeah. Because like for me, as somebody who's held a lot of ether for a long time and now is like staking it, the yields that you get just from staking it. I mean, it's like, again, the thought process of like, well, why do I keep any dollars in my bank account? Have you ever taken a loss due to a protocol failure? Have you ever, have you ever had a bad counterparty? Have you ever like the, the problem is, is that nobody ever sees that happening and yeah. they get more and more comfortable with yield farming and staking and stuff. And then in one hack, they lose like 50% of their wealth or whatever. And so you just, as long as you're diversified and you're thoughtful, right. And, and about it. Great. Uh, but a lot of people chase yield, right? They, they see these high yeah. yields, they get excited. And then there's a hack of the compound uh, network or whatever, and they lose yeah. a chunk of their net worth. So just keep that in mind. There's, there's real risk there. Everything you're getting paid in yield, uh, you're taking the risk whether you know it or not. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah, and I was I was just kidding, obviously about Doge and Shiba Inu, know but, and we don't need to go into all that the, the the crazy fringe elements of this already crazy fringy space that we find ourselves in. But so back to the diversification conversation as we start to kind of wrap up. Stocks like Coinbase, MicroStrategy, HUD8, Marathon. Um, any others that come to mind as it pertains to somebody like me who believes that this space is inevitable and wants to have this first mover's advantage, but maybe wants to diversify my exposure to it beyond just owning the assets of Bitcoin and Ethereum? I mean, there's going to be a few other IPOs coming up, Core Scientific, um, XBDI, it's a SPAC. That they're one of the top Bitcoin miners in the world. I keep my eye on them. Uh, Circle is going to be going public. I really like that company. They're, they're the creator of USDC. Stable coins are going to be coin. huge. Yeah. Uh, I was actually just with uh, Jeremy Allaire from Circle a couple months ago at, at the DCG conference. So, uh, you know, I, li- I, I, I like a lot of uh, companies that are exposed to the ecosystem, but at some point you have to ask yourself, like, should I just own the Bitcoin directly or should I buy these sort of like Bitcoin derivatives? Because when you're buying HUD or Marathon or, uh, you know, Firms like that, Core Scientific, you're really you're really just buying Bitcoin in the long run. 
Um, but with more execution, they're hodling. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, they've got expenses and executives get paid and their stock options and there's Uh, regulatory issues and there's potential leverage. You know, a lot of these equities are taking on leverage to generate that return, right? They're borrowing money from other investors and they're spending it on mining machines and Bitcoin, et cetera. So you got to ask yourself, do I want to have my capital betting on this management team? It's basically a hedge fund, right? Like do I want to bet on their ability to borrow money cheap and and deploy it to generate return? Or do I just want to deploy the money directly into these assets myself? And I think for a lot of people, the answer, the cleanest answer is going to be just on Bitcoin for 10 years, because I think you're going to beat almost everything. But with Coinbase, you get exposure to just the broader ecosystem. Like if Ethereum does well, you do well. Solana does well, you do well. You're even getting the benefit from Doge and Shiba Inu right now trading. (laughs) As dumb as I think that is for the average person to participate in it, um, Coinbase is making a killing off of uh, facilitating that trading. And that's one of the criticisms from the Bitcoin maximalists is like Coinbase is a casino like, that basically allows, yeah. and it is true, like, but people go to ca- regular casinos too, right? And people trade at Robinhood, they trade stock options, you know, they don't seem to be that mad about that, but it really yeah. bothers them that people trade Shiba Inu in Coinbase, right? So back to my comment about libertarians for, for me, but not for you, right? Like, yeah. How dare these people buy these NFTs and trade Shima, you know, and like, I personally don't do that. I don't recommend anyone does it, but I have no problem if they do it. Right. Yeah. I'm a free market capitalist. If people want to trade Shiba Inu and buy NFTs, like good on you. Right. Like go do, go have fun. Like, I don't have a problem if you want to go play blackjack either. Right. But uh, it's not what I do with my capital. Yeah. Well, Mike, man, this has been so fascinating, dude. It's so fun to sit down and chat with you. I appreciate your insights, your information. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the interactions we have offline as well. You've, you've helped me to think a little bit more clearly about my business. And uh, yeah, you're somebody I look up to in this space, in the crypto space, but also in entrepreneurship in general. And I, I'm really appreciative you'd come back on the podcast and, and chat with us. Thanks, buddy. Maybe we'll make it an annual tradition and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Likewise. Okay, what'd you guys think? How did we do? I hope you got something out of this episode. Mike has such a powerful brain. I've learned so much from him and I am really grateful for his time. If you want more, go follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Alfred, where he pumps out an enormous volume of great information and commentary on the state of the Bitcoin market, among other things. And if you enjoy the show, I sometimes ask, please go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow and reach new listeners. Please also continue to share the show with your friends on social media. Uh, It really helps to spread the word and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. Thanks so much to all you for all your time and attention. You guys really are the best. More awesome podcasts coming at you all the way through the end of the year. Lots of great content coming. Love you all very much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.